out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, this is David Eastall, and this is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the Guana Bats, because I spoke to Stuart Osborne recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview, and um, yes, after several minutes of casual chat and getting to know each other, as you do in the world of showbiz, we got down to that interesting um, discussion that were the formative and early years of the musician artist. Stuart, your response, please. Take it away. All right, well, I mean, I let's go right back. I started playing guitar when I was 13, and I was into rock and roll, which was a bit unusual because all my friends at school were into punk rock and ska. Um, but there was a few of us. I mean, we called ourselves Ted's, and uh, I, I just carried on with my guitar playing and sitting in my bedroom playing along to Shadows Records, completely out of tune. But slowly, it gradually got there, and then I rolled forward um, four or five years and I started a little band with Mick White and uh, then that didn't really go anywhere because um, the Meteors bass player left and Mick went and joined the Meteors but I continued on my own and started writing songs um, so I got a portfolio of songs together and uh, there was a friend of ours Tom, Tom Evans um, he was quite a bit older than the rest of us he was sort of like the guy that organised things and ran us around in his van, which was very good of him at the time. And he bought me a Porter Studio, a TAC Porter Studio. And I started demoing the songs I'd written on this little studio, just just totally taught myself, did it in the bedroom, you know. And um, we used to go to a club down in Felton, uh, Felton Football Club, which was quite a legendary place. It was originally a TED club, then it progressed into a rockabilly club, then the psychobilly thing kicked off with the Meteors and uh, the Felton Football Club was like very, very supportive of the Meteors. And I saw them quite late, but when I did see the Meteors, it was just like, wow, this is it. This really is it. And the songs I'd written were a bit on the sort of punky rockabilly front because I was I really liked the Stray Cats, Runaway Boys, and I really liked that new wave punky sound. And it was just clear to me that you had to mix it with rockabilly and put it back to how it used to be. It was wild back in you know, in the 50s, but it kind of lost its wildness. And that's what we were craving as kids. I mean, all the old guy, all the old Ted's down there said, oh, we were around in the 50s and you weren't, you know. That was the big thing they used to say. It was used to drive us mad. And then the psychobilly came out and that was it, full on. So, as I say, we, we used to go down this football club. And as it turned out, um, there was Pip Hancock that used to go down there who was a real big Polecats fan. And I remember him, his pink pegs. And he had a very strange way of dancing. He used to copy Phil's sort of stage presence and copy his dance. And it was kind of like a big hop as he bopped. It was quite phenomenal to see. Anyway, he was a singer. Um, Tom sent a demo of the songs I've been doing on the studio to Pip. And surprisingly enough, he was actually interested in the stuff. So we got together. Uh, we had a little session around in my bedroom. <laughs> Everything happened in my bedroom. And uh, it was pretty cool. You know, We uh, he was really into it. And I got quite encouraged that this stuff wasn't actually just like a load of dribble. It was actually might go somewhere. So we then put out Felix for a drummer. And uh, Dave Turner stepped up to the plate. He was um, a real 
proper full-on punk rocker back then. He had black spiky hair. He looked very Sid Vicious in his uh, belt and all the rest of it. And he kind of fitted in perfectly with his style of drumming because coming from that punk image, it was it was different to just rockabilly drumming. It had more energy to it. And he always had a really good ear for fitting perfect parts to the songs we were doing. So it kind of just almost grew together through osmosis. You know, we just knew we were all going to the same club and it just fell into place. And we had an electric bass player. The bass player was a little harder to find, but we got a guy called Bob Grogan who was a smashing bloke. And he was with us all the way up to the first gig. We supported King Kurt at the foot, at the football club <laughs> on the 23rd of January, 1983. Um, the thing was that, I don't know, a lot of people don't really understand. When you start a band, you all have to put the rehearsals in at the start of the band. And we'd rehearsed from August uh, 1982 right the way through to that first gig in January 83. So we were actually as tight as we could possibly have been. And it, it paid dividends because, um, you know, the first performance, we were pretty, even though I say so myself, pretty slick for a, for a first band. And what I didn't realise, of course, was that it seemed so easy to put that band together. Everyone fitted in perfectly. You know, Dave's sense of humour was a killer for the band. Pitt was just, I always thought he was like Elvis a psychobilly. I, I knew when I had that guy singing with that microphone, I used to look at him and think, you cannot believe how lucky I was to get that guy to the front man. Perfect. And it just grew from there. It was just, just phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, um, cause yes, the front person's always so key, isn't it? And when you when you see most bands, you know, who've made it, it is the front. Well, not completely, but, you know, it has that kind of charisma or something slightly different. I mean, it's a bit of a different world and obviously it hasn't gone terribly well. But Morrissey and the Smiths, you know, he had a, a USP, didn't he? He had something quite unique and Jagger was the same and and such like and Johnny Rotten, I suppose. But when you we were, were practising and thinking this this could be it, did you think... Because the scene had been that post-punk world and then there was a certain amount of bands like Orange Juice. Did you think, actually, is there going to be an audience for us or did you not care at the time? Um, surprisingly enough, we just didn't think about that. It just never crossed our mind. For us, you know, We were doing this, this band thing because it was something we wanted to do. It was, it was a passion of ours. Music, because we used to go to this football club, the Fountain Football Club rock and roll thing, Music, that 50s edge rock and roll music was an absolute burning passion. It was a complete lifestyle. There was, um, you know, we weren't we weren't sort of masterminding a career for this band. We were just simply taking it one thing at a time. We did our first gig. That was a success. We moved on to the next gig. Well, that went quite well as well. Then we were going out to Norwich to support King Kurt out in Norwich. You know, it was just like. Unbelievable. And then as I think it was our sixth gig. I don't know how we managed to swing this, but we, we opened our sixth gig was at the Lyceum, and I'm sure it was Exmail Deutschland. And we opened up for Exmail Deutschland was our sixth ever performance. I mean, how they, when you look back, it, it almost looks like it was planned, but it, nothing was ever planned. It just kind of fell into place because it was, those times were, the golden age of the indie music and there were so many different things around but you didn't have the internet so you had people that were very very loyal to your particular style of music and they'd follow you anywhere because that was their identity that's what they loved 
And that was what, that was a great thing about it, I think. Yes. Well, it's interesting you mentioned about the practising, because I'm one of those people who obsessed with my... Um, kind of BBC Four on a Friday night, rock documentaries and any other I can find. And, there, and it yeah. is kind of, it's interesting, you know, it doesn't matter the band, I just watch them. Um, they're, they're the people who just put in, year, you know, the months, the years of just rehearsing, so they're really tight. And I always remember that one of those, I think it was the classic album of Pink, um, Black Sabbath, and they, they just recorded it in an afternoon. It's a bit like, well, we've been playing this album now for years. It's not going to take us long to go in the studio and do it. And, and then bands like Twisted Sister, who played and played for years. So when they, eventually got that break it was like oh actually this is a piece of cake so obviously you had a lot more musicality than and then a lot of people I've interviewed who who've had to sort of who were sort of weren't that musically brilliant when they started but you sounded like you were but the other the other thing is and you're the only one who's ever said this because most people's influence were like you know David Bowie the glam period and a bit of kind of Captain Beefheart but no one's ever mentioned rock and roll as their kind of um their, their childhood musical kind of um soundscape it, it yeah it I, I, I can't under, I can't explain it why it was because like I say, what was happening at the time you had bands like the Specials, you had all these fantastic punk acts, you know there was some fantastic music around, but I was only interested in stuff up until about 1961. After that, it didn't really float my boat. I mean, it, it, it was when I look back now. And think why? Why wasn't I interested in the specials? It was just, I think it was just your gang. You know, we were we were Ted's. Primarily, I started getting into like the Teddy Boy side of things. You know, there was quite a few good Teddy Boy shops around Felton, Hounslow, and Kingston where you could get all the gear. The football club. When I first went to the football club, you had three hundred Ted's and Teddy girls in this club, and they were all quite. You know, there were quite a few of the old original guys, but there were also loads of youngsters. So it was our own scene that was just sort of grew out from the old days, I guess. And it was just, I just love that that rock and roll music. It, it's there's nothing there's nothing like it. It's the original. It's the original for me. That yes, well, it's interesting because. It because I was just, um, you know, two people I've always loved is David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead. And whenever they talked about their first love or, the, you know, the musical, the moment they thought, I want to be into music, was Little Richard and then Elvis. But it was always Little Richard and Elvis. And they were the same age. So, I, you know, it, I guess it is the source. But for uh, for people like me, and OK, I'm in my mid-50s, it was like I grew up with the Beatles films and then, you know, hearing that kind of stuff. But it was kind of then you got into that early glam in the 70s watching Top of the Pops. So it, it's amazing that you, you sort of, you went, back to the source yes it was it was totally natural as well uh, i didn't tr i wasn't trying to do anything clever honestly i mean I, I was just not that way it was just what i loved i heard it i heard i tell you who was who really got me into the guitar was was cliff richard in the shadows we used to we got this and used to get this um albums from Woolworths called mfp they were like really really cheap and usually you bought them and they were full of cover artists doing really cheesy you know, copies. This particular Cliff Richard album, it was a black guitar and the bloke had a sparkly top on. And when I bought it, I didn't hold much hope for it being any good. And when I put it on, it was all the original tracks and that got played to death. <laughs> <laughs> MFP, yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I suppose I do remember sort of there wasn't a lot on telly when I was growing up, but there was that, you know, summer holiday with Cliff and the shadows. But I do remember hearing an interview with Hank 
Um, it is Hank, isn't it? Um, it's saying that a yeah. lot of punk guitarists copied his style because it was very clean. It didn't have that psychedelic kind of Hendrix-esque kind of or anything kind of prog rocky about it. It was very sort of clean. And so a lot of punks would watch him and then sort of copy him, basically. Yeah, I, I, I can understand what he's saying there. Yes, it was. I mean, Hank is um, quite a guitar snobs. Hank's not seen as particularly groundbreaking if you if you like he was he's never held up as like the guitarist you think about when you think about a guitar player but he was spot on note perfect live you know he was just phenomenal player and back when he was playing he was groundbreaking that was cutting edge what we were doing now the thing with the british sound is it's always slightly anxious there's a slight undertone when you listen to british rock and roll um and that's I really love that. That really floated my boat. Johnny Kidd, Shadows, proper stuff. Yeah, took the good stuff from the, from the American feel, granted, but they just put their own spin on it. Yes, loved. Yeah, I really love that. <laughs> but because because speaking to the lead singer of the King Kurt, he said that um, he they he they didn't really have much of an audience because the the original Ted's hated them and punks didn't get them because they were so crazy. So. He, you know, there was a lot of kind of, um, I suppose, not conflict, but there was, there wasn't a ready-made audience. Did you, did you sort of find yourself a little bit, I don't know, was it easier to digest the work of the Guanabats rather than bands like King Kurt, who were probably a bit more confrontational? We, confrontational. I, without, I don't, want, I don't want to sound sort of big-headed or that, but we've never struggled with the audience. They, they were, I guess, and I, I guess the reason for that was because. We used to go to the rocking clubs and everyone changed with us. They came along to our shows. And I guess, I mean, I'm only guessing, but because of my grounding in the rock and roll and I took the songs that I've been listening to all that time, they were, had a verse and a chorus, they had a lead break and they had a bit of a hook in it. And, you know, that's what I learned from those old records, probably how to write stuff that had a bit of a catch to it, you know, I'm guessing. Yes. And we never we never really struggled with with the audience. I mean we, we used to we went started playing at the Clarendon basement and um we used to turn up there at about half past five sound check and we'd always be thinking, well you know it could be the first night no one turns up. You know, it could be. Could only have ten people in tonight. But I'll tell you by the time we'd sound checked we'd go upstairs and the queue would be Round the corner, round past the station, you'd get 300 in that little tiny bar every time. It used to blow me away that people would turn up. It used to really make my day there. Yeah, well, absolutely. And also, the one thing I sort of come across as well is the kind of the importance, as I probably mentioned at the beginning, of of kind of John Peel. He was like the gatekeeper. So obviously having him play your records and then doing a John Peel session must have been like another kind of i don't know a green light an affirmation that things were going that was oh it was just so amazing you i i was um i was in i was around my bird's house one time and uh we was having a bit of a lay-in like you do when you're a kid with your bird and that and the phone rang and i kid you not i picked the phone up and he said hello it's john peel here can you come and can you come and do a session for us we've had a band drop out it was the bloke himself asking me, could I do it? I said, we'll be there. Give us, give us, give us two hours, we'll be there. <laughs> it's brilliant. What a top bloke. Uh, we did actually meet him as well. 
we were um, we used to have a manager who was around the back of the BBC and uh, we had to be up there one day and he was popping out to uh, get a burger and we bumped into him top man he was a top lovely bloke lovely lovely bloke yes because yeah. most, mostly it was John Waters that used to do that but you actually got John Peel which was even John better Peel. yeah 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 fantastic and he was so positive and complimentary about our stuff which also really blew me away because you know I, I like I say, we, we didn't really take our stuff seriously. I mean, I put a lot, lots and lots of work into to writing the songs and getting it as good as we could. But we were only kids. We just thought, well, it'll, we'll make the most of it. It'll last for four or five months and then that'll be over. And uh, But, yeah, he, he really used to say great things at the end of the records, which just used to, wow, it's, you know, that was Guana Bats and now this is the fall, you know, these big bands. And you think, wow. There you go. That's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> well, absolutely. Yes. And can you remember much about doing the session? Because often I noticed with a lot of bands, and that sometimes the John Peel session was almost their first kind of recording in a studio, was often better than their kind of first studio album, mainly because of yeah. sometimes having the BBC equipment and also having the famous Dale Griffiths. So I just wondered who was the producer on that session? Oh, we had, well, we did. Was it three or four sessions, maybe four sessions we did, I think, over the years? They were all top people. They were all really good top producers. Um, but the thing was, you didn't have any time to mess about. I think you had four hours, maybe five hours to get it all done in. And uh, it was pretty full on. There was no time for messing about. Um, obviously, the, uh, the, the, the equipment they had was second to none. Those studios they had uh, it made avail. You had people like the Beatles and Shirley Bassey, all these absolute top people recording in these places, way back to the war, all the way back to the war. These places were acoustically perfect for our sort of music. So you set up and we played live. There was no overdubbing. The only thing I might have overdubbed is in a, as in a rhythm guitar, possibly. But there was no messing about. You, you did two or three takes. And then you choose chose the best one, and then they they got on and mixed it. Um, there's nowhere to hide at those sessions. You had to produce the goods or go home. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Because the other thing that I've noticed doing this show for a while is that most bands do have this kind of five year narrative of getting together, you know, playing a bit, finding their sound, whatever that might be. Doing the John Pizzali, doing the John Peel session, that kind of like, oh yeah, now we'll do the album. Then they do a bit of a tour or a touring at the same time. Then there was that tricky second album, and if anybody ever does America, that seems to completely destroy them. So what was your sort of period of the eighties? Because it it was quite intense, wasn't it? And you did come out with quite a bit of material and were full on. I would imagine it was just twenty four seven being in the band at that time. It it was um, from eighty three through to about eighty seven, eighty eight. It was flat out, absolutely flat, flat out, um, non-stop really. Um, and it was all, it always seemed to be on the up because you had the club foot that sort of built, was originally a punk club and then sort of gradually become more and more psychobilly. Um, and it just sort of grew, grew out of nothing. Um, but as a kid, you think, you don't really appreciate that it's anything different. You think that's the way the world is. It's like this all the time, isn't it, you know? Surely it's always going to be like this. It'll never change, will it? <laughs> Little did we know, you know. <laughs> yeah, things come to an end, but, you know, that's how it is, isn't it, in life? But you enjoy the ride. Yeah. And that's the most important thing for anyone that's in a band. Just enjoy it because 
you know, could happen, could end tomorrow. Yes. You know? So when you were recording Loan Sharks, which was the second album, were were things starting to sort of, was it getting more stressful? No, not really stressful. The thing is, uh, the first album, and it's the same with any band, the first album is the, is the, is the songs you start with and they've had a lot more um, gig time. You know, the main problem when you do um, write new material is finding the best way it lies, you know, the best arrangement, the best things to change about the song. Because, and they will only really show up when you do them in front of an audience where there's nowhere to hide. You know, if, you, if you're doing them in a practice room, it's just not the same and you can make some pretty good mistakes with the arrangement of a song. So that generally speaking, uh, a lot of bands are, are like this, I think, I hope you'll find. The first album is like brilliant. The second album, oh blimey, we've just used all our first songs on the first album. And uh, that's only, well, usually with a record contract, they want one every year. So that was only a few months ago where it's all been done and now all our good songs are gone. So we've got to start again, boys. <laughs> yeah, Lone Sharks was a little bit like that. It was... It was hard to keep try and keep the standard of the material as high as we could. That was that was the that was where the pressure comes from. But that was only because I write the song. So, and uh, you know, even the first album we wrote a couple of songs in the studio. To be honest, but uh, yeah, it was, I'm, I'm quite happy with the albums. They've come out lovely. Yeah, yes, but the the, the so, so there's also the the other thing that I notice is that um, which if 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 the dynamics of the band or the the business of the band the other thing is that the, the sort of and this is a lot to do with the kind of I suppose that indie jangly sort of guitar sound of the eighties is that when a musical the the music kind of kind of trend changes and suddenly the dance scene started to appear in the late eighties and then after that the grunge and then it's Britpop but but you know it was almost like a few of those bands who did really well in the 80s and did a couple of albums and it's like the third album come out and they suddenly like no one cares because we're not changing with the musical landscape so you're you're in a slightly different kind of um, group to that but how did you start you know find it as as the 80s had progressed and and you know people were starting to get into other different scenes well you see no this is the big this is the big misunderstanding with this. It wasn't that people were getting into other forms of music. It was the drugs that were kicking in. The drugs were taking over. Drugs, this dancing that came out. I mean, there was a couple of things, really. One thing was the clubs thought, suddenly thought, hang about, we don't need to hire bands. We can just hire one bloke on the DJ thing and pay him probably half what they're paying a band, so we haven't got to worry about that. And then B... The drug scene just really just ripped into it. It was it was really uh, uh, and our scene was completely drugs. Were, no one was interested in that stuff at all. There was no interest in it. But I suppose once you try some of that ecstasy and all that stuff, it's it brings you to a new level, which you think is brilliant, but it's only the drugs doing it. Um, and as someone that you know, when we used to do a lot of driving, there might have been a little bit of speed taken just to keep you on your toes and we tried to we've done recordings when we were on that stuff and then you see it in the cold light of day and it's just like right that's it no more of that there's going to be no more of that because you just it just just thoughts the way you see things um and yeah what i i remember quite distinctly that we went on a long tour around britain and everything was fine and then the next year 
it almost that quickly, the venues are gone. It was completely gone. The, the live music thing just collapsed, like a like a classic British recession. The whole lot just collapsed, and they're, they're just onto something else. But it, like I say, the root of the the new stuff was the drugs. It, it was just so clear. The the drugs thing just came out of nowhere. But it was something I was never into really, at all. It just doesn't interest me. Um, and I'm glad for that, really. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, you sort of look back and think, I think, thank God I just drunk a bit more than, you know, normal for a sort of period of time. Because I think that, you know, having sort of heard quite a few stories, you know, it's like different members of the band getting into different drugs, which is a complete, another disaster, isn't it? Some people are into sort of, you know, tripping and some people are into sort of, you know, the speed stuff and then other people in something even worse. In the, it just kind of like the whole thing has just got messier and messier and, and everyone's commitment is all over the place and timekeeping. So did you, I mean, because obviously you were sort of a quite a tight band when you were beginning and then, you know, members were slowly being replaced. How did that sort of affect the dynamics? Um, we were very, very lucky. You see, um, we, we only... The way a band works when you're on tour, because you're in a van for so long with each other, you know, you, and you're virtually with every, you're with each other all day long. Then you do a gig. It's really important you have one bloke that's organised, one bloke that's a laugh. You need the front man, so he's going to be, you know, bit of an attitude about him. But that's what he needs to do his job. And we were always really, really lucky. We never got the bullshit. It's all about me types. We never got any of those. So everyone that was in the band, I don't know how it worked, but they just seemed to fit so perfectly that they actually made the band better by being in it. It was more fun to do the band. There was no, there was no sort of rowing or falling out with each other. There was, there was never the girlfriend that's you know like, like a spinal tap thing. That never, we never had any of that. We were. Looking back on it, it was just a very, very lucky outfit that it just kept going like it has, you know, just brilliant. Yeah. But at the turn of the decade, like the the early 90s, or the, yeah, you, did you decide, would, did the band sort of at that point have a Ziggy Stardust moment and say that's the end? Well, no, only, it was only because Pitt emigrated. Um, you know, the uh, it was kind of like... A, you're never going to buy a house on rock and roll is the sad reality. You're never going to, you're never going to earn enough to be comfortable. You know, you're always scratching. That's just rock and roll, especially in the UK. It's really, really hard to, to, to get by in the UK. And kind of, we, we had the good days of the, the, the psychobilly scene, the house stuff had come, the circuits had collapsed. There was nowhere to play. It was just right to say, right, that's it. We'll pick, move to the States and we'll just become a, we just do it occasionally when someone wants to pay for Pip to come over from the States. You know, that was just how it was. It was, uh, it found it, like I say, with this band, we've never sat down and said, right, this is going to be our 10 year plan for this band. It just never happens like that. And I don't think you can do that with rock and roll. Rock and roll is the most competitive business you can be in, the most ruthless business you can be in. It's the business you'll get ripped off in virtually every step of the way. It's the business that you'll come up with all the ideas and get none of the financial rewards in. That's, that's a definite. And it's even it just gets worse and worse year on year with the um, the digital age. It's, even, it's far, it's the worst 
it's ever been. You, you'll starve to death if you try and make a living in rock and roll. Yes. <laughs> well, I have. And I wouldn't. Yes, I've heard some horrendous stories where people, you know, on publishing especially, who sign contracts and have never ever had a check, you know, and you're thinking, not one. You just never yeah. got any money. It's like, no, we just signed this thing that we were just not quite aware of, and and we never saw it, and there was just no point fighting it because you know the, the money is well gone now. So that was you know 30 years ago. But I think you know there, there's loads of bands, you know, from the janitors to the screaming blue messiahs to various you know people who and certain record labels that were probably independent but you know weren't any better than the major I suppose in the sense that they never really gave the artist any kind of money at all and just destroyed them really which is <clears throat> incredibly depressing yes it is I mean the thing is it's, it costs a lot of money to run a business that's that's the thing we don't understand as musicians it costs fortunes to run offices it costs fortunes to pay staff you know, there's someone taking a cut of the money all the way down the line. Um, we probably, as musicians, all right, we've come up with the with the idea of the song and the concept, but the, the amount of cost it's cost us is probably very little. I mean, if we do own it. We we own it because we thought of it. It's you know, but that's just rock and roll. That's just reality. You you just have to enjoy it, and that's what we did. Yes. And was it, I mean, obviously it must have been horrendous, you know, as we get older, the one thing that you you never factor when you're younger is, you know, you're getting old and, older and having health issues, your parents are getting older, they're having health issues, and then, you know, people start dying. And obviously Dave dying must have been a horrendous shock. It was a massive shock. I mean, I can't emphasise how big a shock that really was because it was only a year or two before that we were trying to get him back in the band. Um, we were really keen to get Dave back on the drums. We really, we did miss him. He, he was he was a one-off, a total one-off. His style was was just completely, you can't really copy his style. The way he just used to think of things, it was just perfect every time, perfect. But it was, he changed. He definitely changed. I don't really know what had gone on. Um, what caused it but when he came we had a rehearsal with with Dave and uh, the, the spark had gone he'd completely changed and I don't really know why that was he just something had changed in him um, and it didn't work out and uh, he didn't even you know we, we we got we had this rehearsal and we were really me and people were so chuffed that he was going to be coming to this rehearsal and then it was kind of like, yeah, okay, well, I'll see you. At the end of it, it was kind of like that. And we just thought, well, he's, just, he's not into it anymore. That must be it, just not into it. And then, uh, then like I say, fast forward a year or two, and then it was just like devastating. When he just, we just got a phone call from his brother saying that, um, you know, he'd, he'd gone. And uh, it was just an absolute bolt out of the blue. Um, we were physically shocked I mean it was because um, I guess it's, it's it, I can only guess it must be similar to being in a unit in the army you're that close to to the other blokes your brothers you know sweat and blood when you when you do a band or probably when you go to war you're relying you're relying on your your band members to get get this together get it performance in front of people you know, if, if one of you doesn't bother to do their job properly, the whole thing will come crashing down. 
it makes you incredibly close. And even though he'd been out of the band for probably, um, suppose he must have been out of the band for about three years by then, it just, oh man, just shook us to the, to the core. And we still, we'll still talk about Dave and it's, you still get kind of choked up about it, that he was so young to have gone like he did. It was awful. Yes, God, that is horrendous. I mean, yeah, I know a few people, and there's quite a few bands I spoke to who've lost members kind of thought, actually, I just don't want to think about it. And then years pass and then it's like, actually, you know, dealing dealing with it is kind of a, quite a big one. But obviously, yeah, it's it's like sometimes, you, you know, you, you wonder what the best thing to do is in those situations and, and whether, you, you, you know, because your heart and soul get sort of taken with it in a way and you just think, what's the point? <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I look at death that you just have to remember the person for what they were, because the thing is, no one gets out alive. That's the fact, the reality. And uh, you know, Dave's left us with with so many great memories of his, and such a so many great laughs because he was the the character of the band for the jokes in the van. He was just fantastic. You know, you'd be going through the most miserable, turid time of a million mile drive. And it would be nothing but grief and aggravation, but we were all laughing because he was mucking about. <laughs> yeah, he was top. He was just a smashing bloke. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and 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 fast forwarding, you, you're still playing, and obviously, you know, I noticed the one thing I've noticed is almost a thirty-year narrative. Now I know you you didn't completely stop for thirty years, but a lot of people have, yeah, sort of thirty years seems to be a period of time where where people sort of start to really appreciate what they did back then much more than they were at the time and then quite you know soon after that period if that makes sense but then suddenly people go my god that was an amazing body of work and of kind of discovering it and rediscovering it and a lot of bands that I've interviewed have sort of got back together again not to try and recreate it but because they just enjoyed it a lot and then sort of occasionally think actually we could play some new material and obviously you must feel quite chuffed still being able to sort of go out live very very honored yeah I mean I just I just love doing. I love playing live. I love being in the band with Pip and that, going on stage and reliving those great days of years gone. You know, all that time ago. And uh, I mean, I've done it when I've gone. I saw Nigel Lewis a few years back, and it's such a great time machine music. He he came on. He played a couple of tracks, and I was 16 again, and I was down the marquee watching the original meetings. It was just, and I guess that's maybe what people get when they come and see us it just takes you right back to that those days when you didn't have a care in the world and it was just all about music brilliant <laughs> yes and the other thing that a lot of people are so relieved about and obviously find it a bit boggling now is being able to go through Europe and play Europe because obviously that's a big one especially the German audience but then you've also done America and Las Vegas so that must also feel like my god you know that you know, when you first started in sort of 82 and then suddenly you find yourself in Vegas or in Germany playing those songs again, you, you must um, think, this is quite surreal. Because I remember Hank, it was Hank or one of the the bassists saying when they were still playing, this was a few years ago in an interview, they would look at each other on stage and grin thinking, God, we thought this was going to finish when we were 20 and here we are in our 70s still doing it. So do you have those kind of feelings as well? Absolutely, yeah, totally. It's... You just things things take on their own life, I guess. They, this sort of music that you create because it it means something to other people. They will as long as they turn out to see you play it, then we'll keep doing it because we enjoy playing live, 
if they enjoy coming seeing us, it's just a perfect relationship. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and are you also finding you, you're picking up a new audience? Because obviously a lot of people are sort of, I mean, it's a good and bad thing, the whole Spotify and internet and streaming, but obviously it gives people access to all this music and you know, it, when I was a kid, I really wanted to find the most obscure band for some unknown reason. But it would make me really happy. Do I just wonder if you still get, you know, young people coming and just thinking, God, I've discovered the Guanabats. And you think, yeah, you were only born like a decade or two ago. <laughs> you know, I just wondered if you, you sort of look out at the audience because there's nothing better than seeing a, a kind of some young kids knowing your songs. Well, we we had a trip out to Brazil a little while ago and there was a lot of youngsters like, half my age, if not even, le- even less than that there. And they were banging into it. And it is great, you know, because that's what it's all about. I mean, I, as I say, when we started this chat, I, I listened to stuff that were 20 years before. And it's great to see that still carrying on, that tradition of people looking back at stuff and, and taking it for what it is. And, you know, if they hear it, they love it. Perfect. That's what it's all about. Fantastic. Um, my daughter came and saw us play the other night and she was up on the chair whooping and screamed her head off, which was fantastic. It's, it's great. <laughs> She'd never, she wouldn't have done that a few years ago. It'd be much too uncool, but now she loves it. It's fantastic, yeah. <laughs> yes, it must be very surreal thinking that is my daughter cheering me on on stage. Because, cause, you know, having, having sort of talked to, you know, like Terry and Jerry and Kinker, and, and most people are sort of playing music and sort of attempted to do more recordings and still enjoying it and even getting better. I mean, have you, you know, is that something that you're also sort of looking at doing as well? We, we did do, a, we had a, another visit to the record, the recording studio a couple of years back. Um, we have to wait and see how that pans out. The main problem is that, you know, we're, we're spread across the world is the main problem. It's getting, I can write songs, but like I say, it's it's knocking the edges off them. It's getting them to a position where they they work really well, which is what I slightly think is, is probably holds us back from recording material too easily. There's problems there for our particular setup. Um, if we were all in the same country, then it would be, um, no doubt about it, but um, you've, got, you've got to keep the standard up. That's the, that's the thing. You, I wouldn't want to just put stuff out for the sake of putting it out. If we put it out, it's because I'm, I'm confident in it that it's, it, it works. You know, it's, it's, it's going to do us justice. Um, I don't really want it to tail off into like, you know, just, just drivel. <laughs> Yes, but it's kind of, it's interesting because I think that's the one thing that, you know, people have kind of managed to sort of, for various, have managed to sort of keep their relationships on a better keel than they probably were when they, you know, love, you know, split up or whatever and sort of play music. But it is that thing of being able to literally play, rehearse once or twice a week, but now people are spread around the world. They can send files, but they can't sit there in the studio. And as you said, when you, that first album you did, you could play that live and see the reaction of the audience and keep tweaking until you were like, actually, this is the bit the audience loves and that's the bit the audience didn't sort of go for. And that's the kind of important thing because obviously just all sort of booking studio time and having a week together would probably not give you enough time to to make the finished product quite, you know, as you wanted it to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And that is dream. Just one last question. What would you say then to your uh, sort of an 18 year old self or the kind of the key thing that you think, God, that was that would have been a great thing to have had when I started at whatever I was going to do in life. You know, when when one was young, all those key things that you or key thing that you just think, God, that that comes from wisdom or experience. Um, Well, it's it's a hard one, isn't it, really? Um, one regret I, from a guitaring point of view, is that I was never taught. I never took lessons. I just learned, taught myself. Um, looking back, that would probably be the one bit of advice I'd give myself personally, is to find yourself a really good guitar teacher really early on and spend six months getting proper guitar lessons. Um, but apart from that, I mean, I probably wouldn't change very much at all, really. I think I've been incredibly incredibly lucky to to be so arrogant as to think i'm not going to join someone else's band i'm going to do my band (laughs) to have been able to make it a success and to go as far as we have and had so many brilliant times and met so many great people out on the shows that we've done it's just been well i I really i think it would be outrageous to ask for more than that really yeah so many people get a chance you know and is it interesting when you bump into sort of people that you go back decades that you might not have really spoke to back then, but now you just see and think, hi, I mean, you know, I just wondered if you have that kind of change of dynamic with, you know, bands that might have been like either bands you thought I didn't really like or a bit rival, but then with age you think, oh, who cares? I'm just going to have a Oh, yeah, that, yeah, definitely, yeah. There was a massive rivalry when we were on Ace Records, Um Big Beat Records, which is part of Ace, rather. Um, uh, Roger used to go on about, I don't understand why you bands just can't get on. But it was the, it was that rivalry that kept pushing you on, kept kept giving you that fire to to do better all the time. You know, it was so competitive. But then you're going to get that with young guys at sort of, you know, 20, 21. You're going to get that, we're better than you sort of mentality just to, fire yourselves up it was it was good it was all good yeah yes well they have a lot of those festivals now where i'm sure you know you can't help but bump into each other and go oh blimey hello how are you yeah we never really we didn't really have um bands that we we didn't get on with because we 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 don't really have that sort of um thing about us of just being arrogant you know pushy and grumpy we just um the thing about the bats, I think, and if we see a band that we think, you know what, they're bloody good and they're supporting, we do push them. We 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 sort of we will go to people and say, you should watch this band. This is a really good band, you know, from what we think, from our opinion. We will. Do, and we've always done that. Pip's always been right up there for. If he sees a really good band, he does really go out of way to push them. So yeah, I think you know, we've always been fair enough like that. Excellent. And that was me in conversation with guitarist Stuart Osborne from the Guana Bats. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for whatever reason, oh yeah, make it nice and positive. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show. That's always good. And um, yes, all these shows have been um, archived, so you can find them on the podcast world that is um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and iTunes. Did I mention that? Probably did. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.